Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. We are here today because we love God. Do you agree? Which is good because Rob asked me to preach today uh, to speak to you about leadership in the church. And you cannot be a godly leader without first loving God. It seems pretty obvious. But consider that we cannot love God except that He first loved us. I want you to think about that for a few seconds and let it sink in. You can only love God because He had you in mind before He created the foundations of the world. Before anything came into existence, God was. And God, in all of His mighty splendor, He planned you into this place, in this time, for specific reasons and purposes to give you a future and a hope, as the Bible says, and also to enable you to honor Him. And now this is God we're talking about. This is not a good friend or or someone with important ties in the community or somebody uh, with authority over you or with fame and money that you can kind of cozy up to and, and hope to gain influence or wealth or power. No, this is God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is outside of time. He's not even bound by time. This is the one who created the universe, and yet he himself is so vast that the universe fits into the palm of his hand were he to have a physical hand. And it is this God who loves you And it is this God who cares more about you, believe it or not, than even you care about yourself. And it is this God who pursued you. Yes, He pursued each and every one of us. Think about pursuing. Pursuing is an active, intentional effort. It speaks of going the extra mile, striving for something, not being denied, working extra hard to achieve it, and being completely committed to the task, not letting any obstacle get in the way until finally you catch and reach it. I think we think of sometimes a police pursuit, how those officers are so dedicated and desperately, intentionally staying on the chase until they catch up, and the one fleeing finally gives up. And in our case, we were not pursuing God. He pursued us. And how he may have reached you when you were a child. You know, one of the founders of this church, Kim Anderson, he received Christ when he was five years old. For some of us, God reached us when we were in childhood or in our teens or at various points in adulthood. The bottom line is we did not pursue him. He pursued us. He was relentless. Loving God was relentless. We weren't. We were, in fact, each one of us was born in sin. 
Right from the start, we were sinful. We know this. The Bible says that we inherited the sin of Adam and Eve. The Bible says we have all, all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That leaves out no one. In fact, the Bible says there is no one righteous, no, not one. And this righteousness is God's standard. You see, it's his standard and his commandments because this is his creation, and he gets to set the standard. And that standard is awfully high. We know that. His standard is perfection. It's also called holiness or righteousness. And anything that is not holy or righteous, not anything like that has a place in his presence. Anything outside of that is sin, and there can be no sin with a holy and righteous God. And so you see the problem here. We are far from holiness. We are far from perfect. We are far from righteous. Even those of us who uh, do the works that, from a worldly point of view, can, can be seen as good, but they easily fall short of perfection. We can simply look at the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses to see how we stack up, and it is not pretty. For example, have I ever lied? Have I ever stolen? Have I ever looked on someone with lust? Maybe not put God first? And that's not just in the past week. That's in the past lifetime. So ever, when I was a child, did I take something that was not mine? Did I tell a fib? Because even something this small breaks God's law. And the Bible says if we offend in one article of the law, we offend in all. And for some of us, it gets worse. We may have actually heard God's word. We knew what the Bible says about putting our faith and trust in him for salvation. We understood the gospel of Christ's sacrifice for us, and yet we ignored it, or we willingly rejected it in favor of our own way. I know I was there. I mean, to think that we considered the glory and the majesty of God and we understood his offer of forgiveness for us, for our sin, and to think that we actively rebelled against that because we wanted life on our own terms, thinking that we know better than God. And in doing so, we flat out rejected his loving call to us. So again, you see the problem here. God pursues us. He relentlessly calls us to come to him, and yet we disobey his commands. We reject him. We rebel. And then we understand the reward for this rebellion. The Bible tells us is death, spiritual death. Remember, God can have no sin in his presence. And so we are separated from God by our sin. And once we die this physical death that all of us will at some point, we're doomed. We, we see that. We go straight to judgment. And we have no way to say to him, God, I was good enough. I did some good things. Yeah, I know I didn't what, do what you wanted me to do. I didn't accept the free gift of forgiveness that you offered, but I still think I deserve to be with you for eternity. That would be absurd, would it not? 
our sin is a hideous stench to him. There is no way we can bring that into his holy presence and expect blessing. But here is how loving God is, though. He sees that we have broken his commandments of holiness. He sees that we, and he knows that we have turned our backs on him despite his constant pursuit of us, that we have ignored his pleas, that we have tried to chart our own course, which ends in death and eternity in hell. And in spite of this, God continues to pursue us. And so in his wonderful, marvelous plan, this triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he chose to humiliate himself to a degree we cannot even imagine. And he did this so that we could be saved from our sin and be with him forever. His pursuit of, of us, his pursuit, took him to depths of degradation and suffering that no one should have to endure. And he did this willingly. An outpouring of love that this world has never known again. First, this vast, infinite God lowered himself to become a human being with the little bones and the soft flesh of a baby, the most helpless state of humanity. That in itself, to me, is just unfathomable. How can an unmeasurable spiritual God reduce into a tiny physical body? Then... He lived a sinless life. He led an earthly ministry that showed us the ways of God before our very eyes. He performed many miracles. He encountered much opposition from the very people that he came to save. He willingly received physical assault and torture at the hands of arrogant, sinful men. He willingly faced public ridicule in the most demeaning ways. He willingly had his bruised and bloody body tied to a heavy wooden cross and carried it along a trail. He willingly had spikes hammered through his wrists and his feet to pin him to this heavy wood cross. And he willingly let that wood cross be lifted up vertically so he would hang from it in unimaginable physical agony. And if that weren't punishment enough, then came the worst of all. This perfect person who had left, led a sinless life, had never known sin, took all of our sin on himself. It's like he took the blame for all of the ugly, wretched, horrendous sin that every person in history, past, present, and future, including ours, he let this sin be put on his back, figuratively speaking. And then he carried it to the death. He took it to the grave. He buried it once for all time. Hallelujah. But the one who knew no sin, he went to the grave, having received all of the sin of humanity. And in that act, he took away all of our sin. He did away with it. No longer would sin account against us. His sacrifice of himself fulfilled all of the requirements of God's holy law of sacrifice, a burden in the old covenant. 
But it gets even better than that. On the third day, we know Jesus came back to life. He defeated death. The sting of death could not hold him. He came out of that grave in a a physical and glorified body. And he walked around visiting hundreds of people, showing himself to believers that he indeed is the risen Savior. He was the one who fulfilled God's promise to save people from the sentence of death for their sin and give them new life. What a promise. And He lives today and forever at the right hand of the Father until He comes again to dwell with His chosen people in all of His glory. What a promise. And so how do we receive this promise? By accepting the free gift What gift? Well, Jesus taking your sin and exchanging it for His righteousness. That's right. You give Jesus your sin. Here, Jesus, this is my gift to you. Sin. And He gives you His righteousness. It's the great exchange. Rob often refers to the great exchange. It's not fair, is it? When you pass from this physical life and stand before God, He doesn't see you anymore with your filthy sin. God sees Christ in His righteousness. It's like you have been completely cleansed. You put on the fresh, bright, clean clothes of Christ. And that's what God sees in you and your name. And so He welcomes you into His presence in heaven. This is God's grand promise to us, but only to those who accept the gift, honestly repent of their sin, and believe in their hearts that Jesus indeed died for their sins and resurrected to new life. We know we don't do anything to deserve this. We deserve the death, actually, that Jesus died. That's what we deserve. And so we know we can't earn this gift with our feeble attempts at good deeds. It is solely and only provided by the mercy and grace and the patience and the long-suffering of Jesus. And so the gifts keep on coming now. We live the rest of our earthly lives with the peace of knowing Jesus our Lord, that He keeps His promises. He promises to not only bless us, with the gift of heaven upon our death, the gift of salvation, but he blesses the rest of our days on earth as well. Now, as we know, the blessing is not always comfortable. It's not always easy. It's not even without pain. The difference is, for the Christian versus the non-Christian, we both have trials and tribulations. The difference is, the Christian has the promise that Jesus is alive. And He goes through the struggles with us. He is with us. Emmanuel. As we fix our eyes on eternity, He makes the present bearable, does He not? In addition, we know that these struggles have a larger purpose. And this purpose is actually for our good. And will bring him glory. So even in the unbearable struggles of life, we have the blessing of God that he is there with us 
and that he's using those struggles for our good. We ne don't necessarily get to see that immediately or, or maybe at all until we look back. And then that actually brings him glory. Imagine that. God went through all that sacrifice and says that we, you, me, and every believer, actually bring him glory. And he even prays for us. Jesus Christ actively prays to the Father for us, for you and me. Plus, he gives us his holy word, the Bible. God himself speaks through the scriptures. Blessing after blessing. And if you've never had an opportunity to look into the, the history of why we even, why we still have this book, the Bible, why we have the scriptures with us now, after all this time, all these centuries, it is a very, very inspiring picture of who God is and his faithfulness and his protection, that he would protect his word, that we can have it today. He gives us the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and hearts and minds to the wondrous pages of the Bible, even. The greatness of God, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the glories of our salvation, and the wonders of the Bible. It is this God and Lord who we worship. Praise Him, love Him, sing to Him like we've done this morning. Sing to Him wherever you are. We owe Him everything. All that we have comes from His loving hand. Every breath that we take, every thought that we think, every gift we possess, every new day of our lives, these are gifts from Him. How can we not be overwhelmed with love and gratitude? So let us serve Him with gladness in every way we can. Let us honor Him. He is worthy. He is infinitely worthy. So, the question is, how in the world are we worthy to serve God? Well, the answer, obviously we aren't. Not by a mile. We're not even close to being worthy, except it pleases God for us to give ourselves to Him. Remember, this brings Him glory. And fortunately, God has given us many examples in his word of service that pleases him. And this service is often called servant leadership because those who serve God lead by example. Leaders serve and servants lead. Again, leaders serve and servants lead. The primary example of that is Christ himself. And as we saw in the scripture reading in Matthew 20, Jesus explains clearly the difference between the leadership valued by God and the leadership valued by the world. The world sees greatness in who? Leaders who lead by force and power and might and authority. Jesus says just the opposite. Speaking to his 12 apostles, he said in verse 26, as we went over, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In one sentence, Jesus illuminates how 
God values the servant as a leader. And this is what Jesus models throughout his life. He leads while doing what? Serving people. He gets down on his knees and washes the feet, the dirty feet of his disciples. He touches a leper. He heals a blind man. He dines with a tax collector. He holds a conversation with a five-time divorced woman who is a Gentile and then blesses her. He gives food to the hungry. He shares hope with the downtrodden and the weary. Look what it says in that verse. Jesus came, what, not to be served. He didn't come to be put on a pedestal and seated in the palace and fitted with a a crown of, of jewels and the finest robes like the kings of the earth. But Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Everything Jesus did was about serving his heavenly Father by serving others. Truly, in, in, his, own, in his words and in his actions, Jesus thought not about his own well-being, only about God the Father and the people. He says in the book of John, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, speaking of God the Father. And again, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, in the book of John, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Extremely humble, giving of himself. This is the example set for us. And the example that he brings so that it rings clear when believers are told later in Scripture to deny ourselves and humble ourselves. Jesus has given that. And so Jesus provides the primary example of servant leadership, loving believers, while sharing hope and love and mercy with unbelievers, even going to the cross to accomplish his Father's will. But this is Jesus we're talking about. So, you know, it's, it's easy for us to say, yeah, but, I mean, it's Jesus. He's a member of the Trinity. You know, he could, he could serve. It's, but what about humans? What about, hey, we don't have, we're not coming from heaven and taking on flesh like he did. We don't have those God attributes. And so, let's take a look at a couple of them. I think of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, he was a prophet, a man boldly used by God to lead Judah and Israel away from idolatry and paganism. And he courageously preached God's message of repentance, turning to a future Messiah, and that God would glorify himself through the renewed and increased glory of his people. Isaiah did this for more than 50 years during times of war, through threat of war, calling his nation's kings to trust God and not military might for salvation. And in the book of Isaiah, we have one of the defining characteristics of servant leadership clearly brought forth. Willingness. Willingness. In chapter 6, Isaiah recounts a vision he has of God in the temple. It's a powerful vision in Isaiah 6, which Isaiah describes God's glory. Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of His glory. Isaiah's reaction to this scene, Isaiah, a God-loving man, his reaction is one of abject terror. (laughs) Here is God in all of His perfect righteous splendor in the presence of Isaiah, a good man, but one stained by sin like the rest of us, like all of humanity. Isaiah's response to that is stark and clear. Woe is me, he cries, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. God then cleanses Isaiah, atones for his sin, and asks, who can God, and asks, who can God trust to go into the world and share the news of God's redemption? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. You see, often the most powerful need among God's people is the simple willingness to serve. Just to say, here I am, send me. Make yourself available. God will use you. If you don't know where you fit in, what you should do, where you should go, just go to your pastor or one of the elders. Just tell them, here I am. Send me and watch God work through you. How about Moses? Was Moses willing? No. (laughs) Not all successful leaders are willing. Moses, at least initially, Moses wasn't. He's famous for having argued with God when God chose him to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Moses says, when God calls him, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He's questioning God. God then promises he will be with Moses throughout. He even tells Moses in great detail exactly what's going to happen. He tells him what to say to Pharaoh, what to do. He explains exactly how it's going to play out, what Pharaoh will do, what the Egyptian people will do, how Israel will be victorious. They'll gain their freedom. They'll even gain the Egyptians' silver, gold, and clothing. Down to that detail. Moses continues to argue. But behold, they will not listen to me, believe me or listen to my voice, he says to God. So God explains, uh, I'm sorry, Moses explains that he's not a good speaker. He's not eloquent. He doesn't give good speeches. But God persists. So finally, Moses, out of excuses, finally just blurts out, please send someone else. Send someone else. Well, we know the rest of the story. God convinces Moses that his brother Aaron can do the talking. Moses shall perform the signs with a staff. And along the way, Moses winds up boldly confronting Pharaoh and indeed leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Along the way, he becomes a faithful mediator between God and God's people. He is prayerful, humble, heroic, not perfect, But God uses Moses in dramatic, mighty, and miraculous ways. This reluctant servant ends up as one of the most well-known heroes of the faith. And while Moses might have resisted the call initially, the call of God, he obeyed the commands to a T. 
And so you and I might be reluctant at times to step out in faith, to heed God's call, because we do not feel up to the task. Well, I say don't not, do not let that stop you. This is far more common than you would imagine in people. Uh, I believe we all feel very inadequate to do God's work. Would you agree? Uh, I do all the time, even like delivering this message. Uh, but when God uses ordinary, inadequate people and he completes his mission, guess who gets the glory? God does. Because only he could accomplish the things he does using inadequate people. And we are here to give God glory. Speaking of reluctant individuals, try Jonah. Told by God to go to a city and preach repentance to its wicked people, Jonah instead ran away, boarded a ship, went the other way. He booked a trip, headed as far away from the city of Nineveh as he could think of. But when God wants you somewhere, he will get you there. And so in Jonah's case, we know that he used a huge fish to swallow him after he was thrown overboard in a storm. God held Jonah in that fish for three days and three nights. During that time, Jonah repented of his sinful attitude. So God caused the fish to spit him onto the shore and then told him to travel three days across land to Nineveh. And there, Jonah obeyed God and boldly shared the word of God for Ninevites to repent of their wicked ways. And they did. God used Jonah to turn their hearts. Even the king made a law that all the people should turn their, from their sin and violence and turn to God. And so God spared Nineveh. He used Jonah, the one who wanted no part of it, to lead one of the great revivals in history. So God uses even the most unlikely of people. One of those was, we think of Gideon, a modest son in Israel who tells God to get someone else to save Israel from their enemies. Get someone else. Gideon, just like Moses, he argued with God. He tested God. And eventually he obeys God and leads an army of just 300 men to defeat the vast army of Midian, which had more than 120,000 soldiers. Or there's David, small and assuming, yet appointed by God to be king of Israel. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David's heart was right with God because he feared God more than man. And this enabled him to step forward in faith when no one else would to defend God's honor and God's name against Goliath and the Philistines. David's faith led him to become a beloved king of Israel. And we could go on and on and on. The examples are all over the place. There's steady, content Joseph who perseveres in the face of unjust circumstances. There's Paul, a brutal persecutor of Christians as Saul. And then the dramatic, passionate missionary to the Gentiles as Paul. There's John the Baptist, unconventional, a bit weird, okay, a lot weird, but who remains the picture of humility 
as he calls people to repentance and points his own followers to Jesus instead. And we could go on and on. But it's time to bring this around to us today. Is God calling us to serve him today? Of course he is. Is he worthy? He is worthy. Now, is God calling us to run at Goliath or to open air preach to 100,000 people in a wicked city, to persevere in the face of unjust circumstances, to share the good news of Christ with those we think do not deserve it? Maybe with difficult family members, with spoiled, rich, coddled brats at work, or in your neighborhood. In short, are we to serve so that God gets the glory, not us? You know the answers. Yes, he is calling you and I to step forward. The capacity may be very small at first. Let's say, be a little more selfless at home. But be faithful in the little and he will give you more. Remember, leaders serve and servants lead. So as Christians, each one of us is called to serve in three general areas. Our home, our church, and our community. Three general areas. In the home, God calls us adults to lead. Not the kids, he calls us adults to lead. And first and foremost, we do that by loving our spouses. Yes, we are to actually love our spouses. The hard part is leadership in this area is about giving up. Now, I don't mean just fold the tent. I mean giving the other honor. Men, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That means by sacrificing your own wants and needs and putting hers first. 1 Peter 3.7 says, Husbands are to live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Show her honor. Lift her up. Likewise, women, love your husbands sacrificially as well by submitting to their leadership and respecting them. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And a little later in Ephesians 5, it says, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this pattern of sacrificial love depicts Christ's relationship with his church. We are the bride of Christ. And he is the head. In this model, it pleases God. It shows the world a picture of Christ's relationship with his church, and it is winsome to others when they see a strong, self-sacrificial marriage. And beyond that, it is one of the most powerful witnesses of Christ to a married couple's children. You want to know how to train up your children to love the Lord? to parent them well, to be a witness of Christ's love for them to follow? 
work on your marriage. Work on putting your spouse's needs first. On loving him or her without regard for your own well-being, but for theirs. In this way, your leadership in the home becomes clear, steady, and a source of spiritual wealth that your children can draw on for the rest of their lives. And much of this same ethic is our roadmap for serving in the church. I'm talking about both the local church, like OVBC, and the universal church, which is all believers everywhere. Putting others' needs before our own. So let me ask you, do you participate in church? Do you come to get or to give? Certainly we receive when we come here, do we not? We receive the word preached from the pulpit, the word preached in various classes and groups. We receive blessings from the music here, major blessings, from prayer, from communion, from fellowship and the like during the worship service. We certainly do receive. However, those are not done in a vacuum. God pulls people together from an amazing variety of slices of life to participate in these things and to lead these things. He uses each one of us in a unique way to serve the needs of the others. It's why God calls us a body. We are each a body part designed for specific roles so the body can function at its best. And I, I mean, it's a very understandable concept. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and this is the key, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The health of the body is paramount. And that health is strengthened by each member loving Christ with all of his or her heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then loving each other in whatever way God has called you or opened a place for you to serve. Let me give you an example right here in our, our own church. I'm going to pick out one, and it helps because she's not here. Pastor Rob's wife, Dawn, has helped teach Sunday school lessons to the children for many years here. Yet by her own admission, it's not where she thought she would serve. Because she's not a, a, a trained teacher, a, a natural-born uh, school teacher. Uh, she's not an award-winning Bible scholar. Then why, you may ask, is she a dedicated longtime Sunday school teacher? for the health of the body. You see, there was a period many years ago in this church when the existing Sunday school teachers at the time, they could no longer serve an OBBC in that capacity for a whole variety of reasons. And it, it just happened to kind of all hit close to the same time. 
And so we were in danger of having no one to teach the children. And so we looked around who we had, and Don said, here I am, send me. And she got busy, and many children have grown up hearing the gospel taught, and the health of this body was strengthened. That is servant leadership. Now, I pull out Don as one example, that, but there are many, many examples here. I, I look around here, and I see, especially in such a small church, the faces of you guys who have selflessly served and given of your time and your abilities and, and your effort, just like Don and Isaiah, just by your, your willingness. And so being united to each other in membership in this church body is a profound service. So open your eyes and ears to where God shows a need and step out in faith to fill that need. And you will be amazed at what happens when you serve. In this, you are a leader. You lead others to serve as well. And then finally, our entire lives are not spent at home or in the church. Each of us lives in a community in which we rub up against even more people. Uh, we have jobs that usually require interaction with other people. We have physical neighbors. We go to stores. We attend classes. We go to booster club meetings. You name it. We're, we're part of the towns and the cities that we live in. So when people see you and hear you and get to know you, who do they see? Do they see a leader? A servant? The Bible says his chosen people are the aroma of Christ. Through us, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.15, God in Christ spreads the, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Each of us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Where? Where does he say? Everywhere. And so in closing, we truly are God's ambassadors. What an incredible privilege to be on God's team, so to speak. To be in, in his cabinet or uh, one of his trusted inner circle, as it were. We represent him at all times, in all places, to all people. And some of those people do not know him. Some of them are heading for a Christless eternity. A Christless eternity full of misery. Some of them are where you and I were before one or more of God's ambassadors loved you enough to tell you the truth of Christ's free gift of salvation. So in our homes, in our churches, in our church family, and in our community, be a leader by serving in whatever capacity God calls you. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So let's be eager ambassadors to share the beauty and the glory and the majesty and our love of Him, because He first loved us.
as the worship team comes up. Let's please consider what God is calling you to do. In the church, in our families, and in the community. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by your goodness, by the truth of your word, that we can not only know you, but we can glorify you by serving. Lord, I don't bring much, but whatever I have, it is yours. May those be our words this week as we go about in our communities and in our families sharing your good news of your love in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.